Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. I invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn to page one or 399. Uh, we're looking at the story of Samson in Judges chapter 16. We're also continuing in our series, Messy People, Merciful God, where we look at the mess that Israel makes of themselves throughout um, the, the book of Judges and how that points towards our need for the cross, our need for a merciful God. And today we're going to look at Samson. Samson is the last of the judges that are mentioned. There's 12 in total. And if we remember that downward spiral that Israel is in, we can expect to find that Samson is maybe not uh, the greatest um, example to look at, or uh, at least a great example of virtue. Uh, We aren't going to look at the whole story of Samson because it takes a number of chapters, but we'll just take a bit of a look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, and then 15 through 22. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went to spend the night with her. The people in Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later... He fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, Anyone who ties me with seven fresh thongs that have not been dried will become as, I will become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers and the Philistines brought seven fresh thongs that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With the men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the thongs as easy as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. The story goes on and shows a couple other attempts of Delilah, and then we'll pick up in verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death, so he told her everything. No razor has been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. 
When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with silver in their hands, having put everything Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. And she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, for a few weeks, I was known as Shimshon. Uh, Shimshon is the pronunciation in Hebrew for Samson. I was in Hebrew class, and the professors insisted that we all had to take on Hebrew names. And our professor thought it would be particularly great if I was Shimshon. He, he kind of gave some flexing things, being like, this is a great name to have. Like, you should be proud of that. And I thought, well, why not? Like, Samson seems to be kind of the, the dream man of, for any child, if you look at um, the history of Samson and how he has been treated um, in kind of Christian culture, we can find Samson action figures. There's, there's magazines that have been put together that just show off Samson and his strength. Anyone would be happy to take on that name of this hero-like person. It kind of has like a superhero status in a lot of um, children's stories. Imagine my surprise, then, of reading the story of Samson. Uh, it wasn't the, like kind of this happy guy that, like, I took this picture or I drew this based off of a story that I grew up reading, and the picture that still is in my mind when I think Samson, this big, strong, hulking figure. Imagine my surprise in reading about him and actually finding he's not really a good model to follow. Uh, He's far from a moral example. Uh, God works his salvation through him, but he's also very messy in his life. He's kind of messiness incarnate. In Samson, we find a very selfish individual who just flagrantly follows his own desires throughout the story. Rather than being this calm person, rather than being one who follows God's rule and follows God's law to bring him flourishing, he goes after his own heart, his own desire, and that leads to chaos. That leads to messiness, and it leads to, to death. Uh, to get a bit of a sense of how this shows up in Samson's life, kind of going beyond what we've read, I just want to do a quick contrast between the early judges and Samson, because Samson sits at the very end, so they're intentionally contrasting him to the rest of the judges. With the earlier judges, whenever they come onto the scene, it's for the purpose of relieving Israel from oppression. 
These, their neighboring countries or nations are surrounding them and oppressing them, taxing them. And in the earlier judges, they come in and they, they lead the people to battle. For Samson, whenever he's fighting, whenever he goes into battle, it's because of his own selfish quarrels, the, the vendettas that he's begun, and it's only him fighting against the Philistines. And you'll find throughout the story, it actually brings more oppression to Israel. The Philistines get angrier with Israel and attack them more. The opposite happens than what you would expect from a judge. You even see the way that people go into battle is different with Samson. In the earlier judges, they go into battle, there's death by the sword or what's kind of seen as more cleaner kills, especially in comparison to Samson, who just bludgeons people with a jawbone. Uh, later on in the story, he kills people by tearing down a temple and they're crushed by the stones. It's, it's gory, it's, it's meant to be in contrast to what is found earlier on. Lastly, thing, or at least of what I'll mention here, is that the earlier uh, judges led towards the restoration of the land. The people could enjoy the fruits of the land. This was part of this kind of return to this Eden-like state. They could enjoy the blessings and the fruitfulness of the things around them. With Samson, it's the destruction of the land. We have a story where Samson takes some foxes and ties them together and puts torches on them and burns down the wheat fields. We have him destroying the land around him and showing cruelty to the creation that Israel was meant to care for. Samson seems to bring ruin rather than flourishing, cruelty rather than care. And with all of this in his story, we might wonder why I was so um, happy to have Samson as my name. How does he enjoy such a good reputation in different Christian circles? Well, one reason might have to do with the fact that Samson accomplishes God's purpose for Israel. We might mistakenly think that God can only work through good people and force ourselves to, to look at Samson's story and think, well, maybe there's just some cultural differences and I'm, we're, we're maybe missing something. He's really a good example. We just have to look hard enough. But this gives a bit of a limited perspective on how God can work. God can work in ways beyond people trying to consciously do good. Another reason, though, has to do, I think, in Samson with the very strength itself. Samson exudes qualities that our culture prizes. His superhuman strength, the clever mind to get things done. When we actually read the stories and we see the cues that he's not a good example, we let those things kind of wash past us because we're more interested in the other facts. How many people did that guy kill with a jawbone? He did that all by himself? He, he carried that gate on his shoulders? Those are the details we pay attention to, forgetting to see that maybe he's not the example we ought to be following. 
Never mind the fact that he doesn't keep his Nazarite vow and that he brings destruction to himself and the people around him. Those details can sit in the background. Samson's sleeping with a prostitute in Gaza. We can leave that out of the children's stories, understandably, and just focus on the gates that he uses or that he walks up the mountain facing Hebron. Now, I bring this up because I think it's important to be aware of our own cultural value systems that we bring in when we read the Bible, and particularly this story. If we think of our culture, we live in a time where strength and power to get things done is prized so much that we can allow ourselves to gloss over the details of how things get done. Whether it's in the film industry or big business or sports, it doesn't really seem to matter. People that take this me-first approach using their cleverness or their strength to get things done are often admired, regardless of how they got there. And the problem is that the church isn't an exception of this. The me-first approach, the get things done at all costs, happens in churches as well. Often we end up mirroring the culture rather than starting, uh, standing in contrast, rather than standing out as a place where flourishing can happen, we end up looking like Samson and seeing some of that destruction. The cultural values particularly show up with Samson and his manliness. The story of Samson is a good example of how easy it can be to take on what our, cultural pri our culture prizes and turn that into a biblical value. We have children and grown men who grow up wanting to be like Samson, even though the strength throughout the majority of the story is actually used as a negative example. It's something that is harmful here. And it's not just the Samson story, of course. The myths of our culture of what it means to be manly or womanly show up cloaked in biblical language all the time. And we have responsibilities in creating a church culture that resists unhealthy and unchristian stereotypes that get pushed onto our children and onto ourselves. As young men and women, as parents and grandparents, as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, this is something that we should take seriously. And I bring this up now in the story of Samson because we live in a time where our gender expectations are a live topic in our culture. If it's not live for you, then talk to your children, talk to your grandchildren. People are asking questions of what, what it means to be a man and a woman in new ways, or at least it's, it's getting lived into in new ways. And there will be a temptation in the midst of this to just dig in our heels, to double up on the Samson stories and try to see him as a good example, try to do anything to help clarify our own sense of what manliness looks like. But in doing so, we may be missing an opportunity to show something beautiful, something better, and something more true than what our culture has to offer. We need to do more than just echo what our culture has presented to be what is a man or a woman. We need to be able to look at stories like Samson and be able to see what's the good in the story and what is the bad. 
Now, in the story of Samson, there is good in here. That's right after where we stopped reading. We see that it is once Samson is weakened and blinded that he can truly frame his desires rightly and return to God. It's in the midst of his weakness that his strength aids in the rescue of his people. When we look towards positive examples of men in Scripture, we should note that a different type of strength is looked at. We're called to act in gentleness and humility. We're called to imitate Christ and his compassion and his strong resolve to follow God's will. We should read the Samson story as a caution against our culture. Our culture prizes anyone that can get things done in our own way. And we find that the biblical story says that this does not lead to flourishing, but this actually leads to death and destruction. Our series is titled, Messy People and Merciful God. Well, Samson is this ultimate messy person. He lives out the dream of pursuing anything he wants, but this doesn't lead to happiness for him, but this leads again and again to destruction. Now, to get an example of Samson in the midst of his messiness, I just want to look through the story of his relationship with women because that's how the story presents it. That's how Samson is introduced in our story, and it repeats itself over and over again. And this is actually in direct contrast to what we find in the first judge. If you remember, the first judge is named Othniel. This is the very beginning of Judges. We have the story of Othniel and his wife. His wife is named. She speaks on behalf of Othniel and secures a land with springs in it, land that will bring flourishing for them. That's the first judge. Now we're at the last one, the 12th one, and we have three different women come into Samson's life, and each of them lead to destruction. The opposite happens three times over. So Samson, um, he is born at the end of chapter 13 in Judges, and chapter 14 starts off like this, looking at the first example. He sees a Philistine woman and wants to take her for marriage. We get the sense already in his introduction that he has no control over his desires. His first of, of his first words to his parents, he says, get her for me because she pleases me. Uh, this could be also translated as she is right in my eyes. There's a direct quote towards uh, what we find later on in Judges, where in Judges 17 and Judges 21, Israel's unfaithfulness, their lack of ability to follow God, is put in the words that they did what was right in their own eyes. Well, here we have Samson as a template for that. He sees something that is right in his own eyes, not under God's eyes, and he pursues it. And we can ask if this relationship that he follows here, if this leads to flourishing for him or his wife, and the story emphatically points towards 
a big no on that one. Uh, she ends up being burned to death with her father because of something that Samson had done. Samson himself is almost killed. Uh, that's where he defends himself with the jawbone. The end of that story has Samson nearly dying of thirst and alone. And it seems like, at the end of chapter 15, that that's the end of the story. We get this line in verse 20. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So you think, if you've been reading through Judges, that's kind of how you end the story for Judges. Now it should be on to the next person. But it's not the end. That's right where we began reading for today. We have another introduction, introducing Samson almost the exact same way as the first story goes. Samson goes to Gaza and he sees a prostitute and he went to spend the night with her. Now we can ask again if this is something that leads to flourishing or happiness to Samson or the woman and we can have another emphatic no on that one. There's, there's no sense in which he is pursuing fidelity with this person, that this is going to lead for flourishing for either of them. In fact, it leads to an attempt on his death. And Samson escapes by ripping out the gates of the cities, or of the city, but this isn't a random detail showing off his strength, but a foreshadowing of what's to come. His eyes set him astray, forcing him to rip out the gates. When he is captured back to Gaza, it leads to the gouging out of his own eyes. And later, the next story, we have another woman being introduced right away. This one we're probably most familiar with. Uh, she is the only one that's named here. And in this instance, he has fallen in love with her. There's no mention of his eyes. He is simply desiring something, and he follows his desires again. His outward strength is not mirrored by an inner strength. He is ruled here by his desires. And we get a sense here that Samson has been ruled by these desires for some time now. He just acts on this wherever he goes, and he's been doing this so long that He's no longer to see how his strength comes from anywhere but himself. And I think this provides a good answer for the age-old question of, why did Samson tell Delilah? Like, there's just, it seems like a bad move. There's like three times over again. She's clearly not having his interests at stake there. But he ends up telling her. This isn't out of his love and trust for her but the fact that Samson had already made himself his own god. He had disobeyed God in the past and retained his strength. He was beginning to think, well, his strength is inward. It's all in himself anyways. So he tells her. And this, again, doesn't lead to happiness and the flourishing, but ultimately to his death. The consequence of his actions are plain to see throughout the stories his strength to follow his desires doesn't lead him to happiness or the happiness of the people around him, but the messiness of sin shows itself over and over again. So what does this 
maybe have to say to us about masculinity, about sexuality. I think it has a couple of things. It teaches us something important about our, our own cultural context here, that, that following our own desires might not be the thing that gives us our ultimate happiness. This is something that we see three times over again, that him following his own desires, in fact, does not. It makes everyone quite miserable there. We live in a world where sexual desire is prized so much, our ability to fulfill our desires links us to happiness. This is a story that I think has maybe some extra relevance. Here we have a guy who gets exactly what he wants and still comes up empty each time. Samson follows his eyes, he follows his desires wherever they take him, regardless of what God's rule and God's desire for him is. First, he does this in the pursuit of a marriage, then in just sexual pleasure, then in following his heart, but none of them bring the fulfillment that he is ultimately searching for as each one is pursued to his own selfish interests. When, when they're pursued selfishly, they fall apart, both for him and those that he is in relationship with. So many of us, I think, are bound by this thought that if only we could accomplish more, do more things, get our way more often, then finally we would feel fulfilled, finally we would feel that happiness that we search for. The story of Samson shows a person through his power gets his way, and it leads him further and further into misery. It shows this macho dream of strength to be an empty sham. Now remember this, this downward spiral. Judges begins at the top, and we can expect to see this entering into the promised land, the undoing of the effects of the curse. But as we work through our judges over and over again, it gets lower and lower. Things get messier and messier as we go, and Samson is the lowest. He is embodying all of Israel's faults in what he does here. He is messiness personified. And yet, God still works through him. If there's a messy people and merciful God, this messiest of the leaders shows God's mercy at another level. God even shows his mercy to Samson at the end. As we pointed out earlier, it was in the midst of his weakness that he was able to see his utter need and dependence for God. It could have us remembering this passage from 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul writes, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I delight in weakness, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Samson's redeeming qualities in this story come not through his cleverness, not through his muscles, but as a weakened slave who is blinded. 
as a person who finally comes to see that his messiness is so out of control that he cannot get himself out, that he is utterly dependent on God. And we see God in the midst of this, ready and able to work through him. Even in the midst of the chaos of the story, God remains in complete control. Now, if Samson is a character in the Bible defined by his lack of self-control, if he's, he's lacking in control over himself, we find a good contrast to Samson in the person of Jesus, the one who showed the ability to conform himself to the will of the Father, who when he was asked what we should pray, part of the Lord's Prayer, he says, thy will be done. This is the person who says on the night that he was betrayed in the garden, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus shows this contrast to what we find throughout the story of Samson all along, this person who simply looks towards his own desires, his own strength to get things done. Jesus is the one conforming to the will of the Father, and he shows the way of properly ordered love, not in taking everything for his own and for his own satisfaction for, his, um, for himself, but in a self-emptying death on the cross, something that leads to the ultimate flourishing for all. His death on the cross is this ultimate picture of how we get things upside down sometimes. We often think of power in terms of using our power to overtake someone else throughout force. But the cross displays that the ultimate victory over death and decay happens in submitting to the worst that these powers have to offer. The true Messiah, the true Savior, wasn't someone in the form of Samson who could just defeat all the Romans with the jawbone of an animal. It was true power, one that confounded the powers of darkness by entering into every space of death and decay so that he could bring redemption to it. The cross isn't just a symbol. It is how God's victory actually came into being throughout history. Jesus defeating death and sin through his sacrifice. It is on this basis, not a military defeat, that we are offered the forgiveness of our sins. It is in his death on the cross that we are working our way towards in Lent. This, this death reminds us of God's heart, of God's love for his people. Jesus submits to death on the cross not because he's forced to, but because it is an act of God's love. As God with us, he is acting in the way that shows God's love for his people. We see in Jesus a love towards the people that had betrayed him, those who had rebelled against him. Jesus is essentially dying for the Samson's of the world, the people 
who are chasing after the, the messiness of their own desires, to the own, their own ruin and destruction and to the destruction of others. He dies, in other words, for us. Our call is not to mirror the messiness of Samson, looking at our own strength, but to direct ourselves towards the cross. To see that the cross, we have the ultimate response to the mess of our lives. The things that we try to do on our own, the messed up relationships that fall apart when we try to look in the wrong places. When we think that following our own desires will bring us happiness. We can remember that we don't need a Samson-like strength to try to earn our forgiveness, but this has already been done in and through Jesus' work on the cross. The cross means forgiveness for all, all that turn to him. And that's what the cross does in legal terms, but it's also important to look at what the effects of the cross are. What does it do? Well, it means that we are brought into restored relationship with God through Jesus, and we're equipped to living in the pattern of Christ. We are called to conform ourselves to God's will, to take the form of Christ in contrast to that of Samson. So may you go from here through the work of the Spirit, being formed more and more to the likeness of Christ, whose self-giving reveals the love of God that ends that spiral of violence and brings new life into the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, for the times where we, like Samson, act out of our own selfish desires, forgive us. When our eyes lead us and we simply follow in pursuing whatever pleases us, forgive us. We have made commitments and we have not followed through. We get caught in the muck and mire of sin. We are messy. May we see our need for the cross. May we see how through the cross we are transformed into new ways of living. As saved people, help us to see the messiness of our individualism, the ways that we treat others for our own advantage, and sometimes even done in the name of love. Help us to toss off our false loves that point inwardly and may we rightly order our love, love that is first rooted in you and your will in the world, a love that draws us to the service of others. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.